Welcome to the Coop Tank. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, coming to you from sweet recording in beautiful Mount Laurel, New Jersey. You know, people, if you have a video cast, a podcast, a book on tape, or if you need a studio built, sweet recording's the place for you. Matthew and Joe are great guys. They know what they're talking about, and they're honest. So check them out at Sweet Recording. That's S-U-I-T-E, recording.com, or email them at hello at sweetrecording.com. Anyway, we have a, you know, it's funny, my guest, I've known him for like two and a half years, and I've never met him in person until now, and that's what's crazy about with the, the whole Zoom thing, and you actually get to know people, and we've talked on the phone, you know, we, we were friends on Facebook, and he's a, he's a great lawyer who really, he stands up for artists, he's, he's, got, he's mm-hmm. got a really, he's an entrepreneur, and, and he, for a while he was a, uh, he was a Twitter superstar, because <laughs> of a post, we're going to talk about that, and my guest is Michael Adler, how you doing, Michael? I'm great, thanks for having me, I'm very excited to be here. So I want to talk first about the Twitter superstar because you got like 27,000 likes. I mean, the most I've ever gotten was like 4,000. Right. But I mean, 27,000, that's like unbelievable. What happened and what was the tweet about? Yeah, so there was there's actually two tweets out there. But the one you might be talking about, the parrot tweet, the famous parrot tweet. No, I was the, talking about the, the lottery. The sheriff one. Oh, so that was the first time that the Powerball got to maybe a billion dollars. And I had my ticket and I was home. And I lost, just like everybody else. But it was the same time that the um, that Manitowoc Sheriff's Department thing was going on, where uh, it was this making a murderer thing. And so I just changed my numbers and fudged my ticket, just like the sheriff fudged all the evidence in that case. And I posted it. And it was like, haha, it looks like the Sheriff's Department won the lottery. And some reporter, I think, saw it immediately, and he retweeted it. He probably had 800 followers. But then Rosie O'Donnell retweeted it, and Steph Curry liked it. And it just it's just one of those things. Your phone blows up for the stupidest S-H-I-T. Uh, yeah, we can curse. Good. Um, and that one just went viral. That one didn't die for a while. And then I had another one that people mentioned even yesterday. People still talk about another one. It's I put a lot of funny content out there, and mostly it's crickets. And occasionally... What was the one that the other one that's still out there? You said you said a parrot. Yes. So I had a interesting legal real matter where I was representing a gay couple and they were dividing their they weren't married, so it was like a partnership divorce. And I do a lot of that in my practice. And so we were dividing up, you know, antiques and their antique store and a few pieces of real estate. They also had a parrot. They really had a parrot. And we were trying to discuss custody of the parrot. So we were talking about how are we going to divide this parrot between the two guys. And so I jokingly said to the other lawyer, really, like, if we're going to share the parrot, one of you can't talk badly about the other guy while he's at your apartment. <laughs> and I then I jokingly used the throwaway line, and I went to law school for this. And that's become almost a tagline for a lot of other jokes. I went to law school for this. And that one went viral for a lot of reasons. And then someone accused me of stealing her tweet, and I got calls from all sorts of people about plagiarizing on Twitter because a tweet that I had never seen. So... That keeps going viral. It's been six years, and I still have people bumping into me about the parrot tweet as much as the other tweet. It must be funny when you say that, because me having a background in stand-up, you know, I know there's parallel thinking, mm-hmm. and I know you. You're not going to—I mean, people people just don't do it on purpose. Like, I can think of a joke, and I've written a joke, and then I see it on TV. I remember someone sent me a meme of a joke, and I, I was like, I said that joke 12 years ago, and I said I saw a guy in a smart car drinking smart water on a smartphone, <laughs> and he drove like a fucking idiot. That's good. And But all of a sudden, and I, I didn't get offended. I mean, and that's the funny thing. And as a lawyer, it must be funny, because you're like, the last thing I'm going to do as a right. lawyer is plagiarize. I mean, is is there any law, like, can, has there been any lawsuits about Twitter? Like, someone said, mm. I'm going to sue Michael Adler because he did this, and you're like... It's it's Twitter. You have, you can't you don't see everything. Yeah. So it depends if you're really using it for commercial purposes. And I never really have. While people may have liked my post and I've met them in random places where they said I've seen your post, I don't know if it's ever led to a direct new client. Maybe it has. Maybe it hasn't. Maybe it's increased my brand. But can you steal? Can you sue someone for stealing your content? That gets into really interesting legal issues about plagiarism. In the comedy world, I know there's been accusations and actual lawsuits of people who have literally been accused and or sued other comedians for stealing parts of their bit. And if Twitter is just a different medium, then sure, I think there could be some really interesting legal liability for stealing blatantly someone's tweet without giving credit. In the legal world, we can get in trouble for not attributing a site or an argument from another brief into this brief. So it's part of the legal training that we go through. And I think it's no different in just being authentic, 
and uh, just really not stealing or theft of ideas of other people. I think there could be some legal liability. Now, do you think when you do these funny tweets, do you think that helps your brand? Because I know my friend, Jonas Spilbor, she's mm -hmm. out of Poughkeepsie. She's been on the show. She's on the news a lot doing commentary. And when she moved back to, to Poughkeepsie, she did a lot of commercials basically mocking the old guys. And the humor really helped her build the practice. For you, do you think it's... it's it helps you because yeah. it shows it shows more of a personal side because right. we know how people have lawyer jokes and stuff yeah. like that. But when you see a lawyer making jokes, then you go, "It's okay." I mean, what 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 made you decide to start doing making these funny tweets because you are in a profession where some people could be mm -hmm. pushed off? Um, I'm also in the political arena a lot, so I also have to be careful about how something can be used against me. Yeah, there is a candidate or helping another candidate. I'm always mindful of when I hit the send button. But I, I always say, at least in Philadelphia, there's 14,000 lawyers running around Philadelphia, and we all want to make money. We all have to, I try to differentiate myself. I've been my own lawyer. I've been a lawyer for 25 years. I've had my own firm for 10. And one of the things I've always said is, I'm just going to be me. I'm going to be authentic. I'm going to be funny. I'm going to be interesting. I'm going to be engaged in the community. And that's why a lot of my posts are about me, my family, my kids, and the events that I go to, which I genuinely enjoy doing. When it comes to humor, that is who I am. Um, I know you have the balls to get up and do stand-up comedy, and I hope to see you on April 29th at City Winery opening for Joe Matarese. I'm looking forward to getting tickets there. Um, but I've also written comedy. I love writing comedy. I have 1,200. You remember when Facebook, you've been on Facebook a while, used to have notes where before you can write 140 characters, there was a way around that by writing what they called a note. And back in my archive on Facebook, I have about 1,200 fake news articles, onion-type news articles. I used to write one every morning or the night before and post it in the morning. And that was the brand I had. And that goes back to 2006, 07, 08. And I was writing a news article every day, a four-paragraph onion-type news article. It's who I, I really enjoy comedy. I enjoy satire. And it's who I am. It's what I use in my legal writing. I can be a sarcastic legal writer, which sometimes can backfire on the audience. But I use acerbic words to get a point. And sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it breaks the ice. But it's who I am, and it's who I'll always be. Now, you said you were a soccer player, and you went mm. to Rutgers. Now, when did you decide you wanted to be a lawyer? I mean, when you were younger, did you think you were going to be ML, MLS or whatever it was, what Kyle wrote, or you know, whatever? I mean, what when did you decide that law was what? you wanted to do because I think a lot of yeah. us and I grew up in Cherry Hill there's a lot of lawyers and I, in my mind I was like you know I might do law I, I maybe I'll do law school but then I went to college and then yeah. when I got out I started doing comedy and I said I'm not going back to law school right and I have friends who are lawyers who became lawyers later in life yeah. I have a friend just made partner he became like at 30 he started going to law school what made you I mean what point did you say mm -hmm. I want to be a lawyer so great question there's a really long answer I can delve into it more the short answer is when my dad was 38 years old he quit his commuting job to, from Central Jersey to New York and went to law school, full-time day. So for three years, he went to Seton Hall Law School. And on my days off from school as a third grader, fourth grader, fifth grader, I actually went to law school with him. I sat in the class when I didn't realize the professor was using Socratic method and asking hypothetical questions. I was raising my hand. Like, I just thought I could be one of the students. So um, I loved law school. I loved the the give and take between the professors. So my dad, when I graduated, started middle school. Um, there's a long version here and a short version. He started basically his own mom and pop legal shop. So my mom was his legal secretary. My dad was the attorney. And for about 20 years until he got sick and then passed, um, he had his own law firm. So I got to every Saturday in downtown Freehold, go to the office on Saturdays with him and work a little bit, meaning like updating library books and things. Or, as he would say, come in for 10 minutes and then walk down to Freehold Borough and go to the stores and the card, baseball card shop. Right. But uh, I got to see him in practice. I got to see him coach my soccer team. I got to see the respect that he got from local members of the community because he was a community lawyer who helped everybody. And so although my career didn't eventually – didn't start with being a solo that I am now because for 15 years I worked in the big firms and was general counsel of a big company – I think I always aspired to become my own lawyer, my own boss, and have my own firm. So I kind of followed in my father's footsteps, and that's kind of the law, the shortish answer of how I wanted to be law school. Now, were you pre-law at Rutgers, and why'd you choose Rutgers? Yeah, so that's another great question. So again, sort of a bit of family dynamics, uh, also some good academics. 
there were two years that Rutgers offered something called the Edward Blaustein Presidential Scholarship. So in my first week of my junior year of high school, I got a letter from Rutgers saying, we'd like to invite you to campus. And the reason was I happened to academically be first in my class after two years of high school. Didn't know what was going on. 700 kids in a gym at Rutgers, and basically the president of the university says, I know you're just a junior in high school now, but you've all been admitted to Rutgers, and we're giving you a full scholarship. We want to keep the smart high school kids in New Jersey. They did that for two years. So although I had dreams of Princeton and a few other places that may have driven my family into financial ruin at the time as my dad was starting his law practice and everything else, um, I accepted and looked forward to Rutgers and didn't apply anywhere else. Didn't even write a college essay. I've never taken a college essay. I, now that my daughter is applying to colleges, she finds it remarkable that I never had to write one of these essays because I got into Rutgers and I loved Rutgers. I enjoyed it. It's so funny. I, I, I had to pay two years of my college. So I applied to Stockton and Trenton yeah. State mm -hmm. at the time. Now it's uh, teachers, whatever, of Trenton, mm -hmm. whatever. And I was put on a waiting list there when I got accepted in Stockton. And, and for me, it was great. It was great because Stockton was in the middle of nowhere. It really developed me. It was the first time I got on stage. And it was funny because I do not remember the process of filling out an application. <laughs> but I know people, as you said, they're yeah. just like, it's books. Like my one friend's like, oh, my daughter's in you know, 10 schools. And it's like, and you missed yeah, all that. I know. So, so you go to Rutgers pre-law. Well, it was actually poli-sci because I love politics. Politics has been my blood sport since before. Um, I was a poli-sci history double major, knowing I was going to go to law school. So when you graduate Rutgers, mm -hmm. then you come over to Temple. Right. Why Temple? I mean, it was something that, you know, and when you think, I, I don't, I, Temple's a great, my mom graduated yeah. there in 1952. I mean, only woman in her marketing classes. It's a great school. My, my friend's father is, uh, was a dental professor there for many years, Dr. Jack Esposito. And, but I don't think of it always as, as law school. I think it right. was more radio, television, yeah. film, great thing. But so what made you decide, yeah. did you want to, and you're a Central Jersey guy. You're probably right. a Giants fan at the time. You're probably- Jets, long-suffering okay. Jets fan. So, so you're, but you're one of them. You're yeah. one of them. You're, right. you're, you're one of those guys. My, all those guys I went to Stockton with, <laughs> one of you guys. And when the Giants were in there, they go, oh, Eagles suck, and whatever. <laughs> So you're, you're, it's, yeah. so it's really like it's even though it's only like an hour away, it's only, it's like two worlds away. Yeah. So what made you decide on Temple? Yeah. So um, it was mid '90s, and so first of all, my mother was born and raised in Philadelphia. I had an aunt in Philly. Her grandparents were in, my grandparents grew up in Philly. So I always had a tie to Philadelphia. Came down at least monthly all my childhood, um, and I wanted to be in a city. I knew that that was important for me. Leaving Rutgers, New Brunswick, I wanted to either be in New York or Philly, and I was like, eh, New York's a hard ruffle. You know, it's just, a, I love visiting New York, never wanted to live in New York. So Philly was attractive to me. I did apply to all the Philly area schools, applied to Seton Hall because of my dad, applied to Rutgers Camden, Newark, and Temple. And I visited Temple, and I, in the mid-90s and even thereafter, they were really well known for the trial advocacy. It was, we had a professor named Eddie Olbaum who would take this trial team and win championships like 20 years in a row. So that was what they were promoting the hell out of the school back then. So I come down to visit Rutgers and it's the same day that there's a SEPTA strike and a sanitation worker strike. So I'm seeing trash all over the place, nobody able to get around the city and I'm like, what's wrong with this city? But Temple did a great job on selling the school, selling the trial advocacy program, and I just felt at home there. And then I lived on campus for three years, right in North Philly, right on North Broad, and I have stories about that. That was when there weren't even lights on the street lights, and we know how bad, or at least the issues now with Temple University are, but that was before that. Um, but I lived on campus, started to love the city, and started to really become involved in the culture and community and politics of the city during law school and stayed. Now I always I, I you know people as I said other people are lawyers. So when you graduate, how long till you decide to take the bar? Is it, is it something mm -hmm. where you sit there and you're just beat because you've gone to seven years of school by now, right. and your mind's probably like Jesus Christ, I need I need a break. <laughs> but were you someone? I know some people who have taken the bar, and I know someone who failed the bar yeah. three times. Yeah. For you, were you sitting there going, I want to, I'm gonna, I want to get it done in practice, or I mean, what was your steps mm -hmm. to taking your bar? Were you one of those, boom, I'm doing it? So I think the the path for most people is 99.9% .9 of people take the bar exam that first July after you graduate from May. That's just the normal practice. So yes, you go to law school for three years, and then you take the bar exam that summer. 
and you try to do it once so you never have to do it again. And they always say there's no parade in Harrisburg for the highest score. You just want to pass. So I was fortunate. I had a pretty traditional law school career path where I had a really great summer internship after my first year of law school. I got to work at the U.S. Attorney's Office with some of the best and brightest federal prosecutors working on some amazing high-profile political corruption cases of a congressman. I really loved that area of law, but they told us at the beginning of the internship, we're not hiring any of you to start after law school. So have a great summer, but don't look for a job here. So then I went back to OCI, which is on-campus interviewing, in my second year of law school. And I was looking at what's the traditional practice, starting the big firm path, you know, nice salary, learn a lot from good people, um, work, work on big interesting cases with big corporate clients and blah, blah, blah. It's a good way to start your career. So I did get an, a few offers and I chose a firm that was a small little regional Quaker firm known as Dwayne Morris and uh, Dwayne Morris and Heckscher then. It was only 220 lawyers, which was a nice size, but it had five offices in like, and then I had a great summer there, loved the partners there, and uh, I thought I really liked labor and employment law. That was, as you rotate around, you kind of meet different partners, do different work, and I thought it was going to be a labor and employment law. And then at the end of the summer, they call you and say, Michael, we'd like to have you back as an associate after you finish your third year of law school, but we're just going to put you in the general litigation pool. We'll throw you some uh, labor work if you want, but we have a need in the litigation pool, and some of the partners thought you'd be a good fit for that. So, so then I finished my third year of law school, and uh, you take the bar because they expect you to take the bar. A big firm wants you to start and become a lawyer. And fortunately, they actually, back then and still today, they give you a stipend so you don't even have to work during the summer. So you kind of get a little bit of a salary during that summer when you're not working but done with law school. They also pay for your bar prep. So it's a nice little Benny to start for first-year associate. And I loved it. I still consider myself part of that alumni family. Uh, you know, Dwayne Morris was the first place I worked, and then I worked for five years at another big Philly firm that I still think highly of, Blank Rome, and still stay in touch with some of those lawyers. And then I did a few other things until I started my own practice. Now, how do you decide, because what you're doing now, I think, is different than labor law. Right. I mean, I'm just saying it's funny, because I always see, you know, with, with your love of comedy, I always thought, yeah. you know, my friend owns an entertainment law firm in mm -hmm. uh, L.A., and, you know, and it's the same kind of personality, you know, it's yeah. you, you don't, you know, it's entertainment law is different uh it's crazy but it's different but for you first of all why did you decide to leave the big firms and what kind of law were you doing were you doing labor at the big firms no so interesting i've had amazing opportunities from let's see at Dwayne morris one of my highlights is a second year associate was working on what was the bell atlantic gte merger to become verizon and you know you would think why is a philadelphia firm handling that but because of the overlaps of the two states of the 28 states that gte was in and the 14 states bell atlantic only in pennsylvania and Virginia did they overlap. So the opponents, which then were like AT&T and other advocates, attacked the merger on an antitrust basis in Pennsylvania and Virginia. So as a young lawyer, I got to like prep like the general counsels of these big companies who knew they wanted to become Verizon. They wanted to merge. They wanted a national footprint because the telecom industry was changing quickly. Great opportunity. Then I switched to Blank Rome uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, to give me a new opportunity to work on a big insurance and stuff. They were recruiting associates for a big matter they had just been retained for that I worked on for years. Uh, I also started to become really interested in real estate, right? So the real estate group at Blank Rome was really well known, very deep, but they needed like a litigation horse for some of their bigger matters, whether it's a big zoning appeal or um, a big commercial landlord tenant thing or some other fun eminent domain matters. I really was attracted to real estate. So I did that for five years, real estate litigation within the big firm. I had some other matters. I started to develop my own clients and had some fun jury trials on matters the firm let me bring in that actually went to jury trial. But then, honestly, you know, here I am now a dad. And I'm looking at some of these 55-year-old litigation partners who are working their ass off. And, you know, I don't want to say anything bad about anyone at Blank Rome or Dwayne Morris, but it's just being a lawyer. Like, do you want to litigate for the next 30 years of your life? Are you fighting over money for the rest of your life? And I had an opportunity with a, a friend of the firm, a client of the firm, to become general counsel of a big privately held company that had 4,000 apartments in the greater Philadelphia area, but also 
was a wholly owned cable television internet subsidiary for multi-dwelling units, which means like triple play services, not for Steve's house, but for a big condo building, a high-rise apartment building from New York to Miami. And I, got, I took that opportunity. So I was managing real estate matters. I was managing telecom matters, also charter school matters, because this owner happened to own two charter schools. So I got to work on some of that. Plus, the company was so politically active. It like married all of the interests that I had. It was a great two years. And so those two years, I became less of a litigator and more of a full service with one client managing a lot of type of business matters and doing deals and doing employment matters and doing almost everything I enjoyed doing in industries I really enjoyed. So I've been blessed. I did that for two years and then sort of big firm life called again. Um, and, you know, sometimes working for one rich person can be difficult. I was on beck and call till 2 a.m. sometimes. And so I took another opportunity and went back to a big firm for about four and a half years built a real estate and business practice group they didn't have and really had an amazing run until I was approaching the year 40 for me. And I always said, boy, if I'm going to do it, I got to do it. And the day I turned 40, which my birthday's coming up, so almost 10 years ago is the last time I've had a paycheck, right? So I started my own firm June of 2013, and here it is 10 years later, great clients. I've been blessed. I've had amazing, interesting matters and just being my own boss and sort of turning down the matters I don't want to do. And, you know, there's only one pie in a law firm that the partners have to divide up. Now, I get to keep the whole pie. I have to manage my own expenses. But Now, when you go out on your own, was there any, and you had this career and you worked and you learned a lot, but like anything, there's a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of fear. You know, you're excited, yeah. but we always have that little like, oh shit, you know, yeah. what if, well, I got a, I got kids, you know, I know, yeah. you know, was there any, any fear yeah. when you started and how did you overcome that? Yeah, great question. I mean, absolutely. So let's see, 2013, my daughter was eight. My son was six at the time. And, and I was thinking about this for more than six months and literally kind of wrote and sketched a business plan, which I help entrepreneurs right now. And the business plan becomes worthless the day you start it. I had the idea that I was going to not be an hourly lawyer anymore. I was going to have five to ten clients and provide concierge law services. And I wasn't going to be marketing to lots of clients. I wanted five to ten. And I already had one to two in mind, and they were going to come with me, and they were going to give me either a monthly salary, a retainer, and we had talked about it. And then one of them got sold within a month of me starting my firm. And another one kind of said, boy, you've been a great lawyer for me for the last 10 years. But two things, I don't think your solo shop can service our needs. And also, all those fighting that we had over litigation, and we're kind of good now. Like, we don't have enough stuff to keep you busy. So I'm like, uh-oh. So then I started hustling. And um, a lot of the client matters that I was working on in my prior firm, they followed me. I still have those clients, some of them today. Um, I had a big contingent fee case that was business contingent fee case that kind of settled within the first few months of me starting my own firm. And it was part of the deal with my former firm that that was my fee because it was my book of business, my client. So that really helped. That started, you know, the account marketing. Like I, I just had money in my business to, I was very fortunate to have that. So there's always luck. Overcoming fear, I don't let fear, you know. I get this advice I gave myself was the same advice I give to clients who have a nice little corporate job making a nice salary but think they could do it on their own is a lot of things like let's make sure we have all your corporate documents in order but also figure out what you need to live and then cut that by 10 to 20 percent and make sure you have enough savings so you don't have to drive an Uber while you're trying to start a company like how much do you need to pay your rent or mortgage how much do you need to eat and don't go out and spend money on drinks and, you know, and so that you're not worrying about the basic necessities of life while you're focusing 14 to 16 hours a day on your startup. And if you can focus that without worrying about having to drive an Uber or whatever, then you can really get this business launched. Now, I know you've worked with a lot of artists and entrepreneurs. I have, yeah. Why the artists? I mean, what was, what was that draw? Because, you know, I come from a background yeah. of art. I mean, I've been in... TV, I've been on movies, I've been on a lot, you know, and, and I know artists, and, and we're insecure people, you know, we're, we're and I always say this, and I'll say it a hundred, we're insecure and we're narcissistic, which is like the worst mix, because right. that's why we do this shit. Yeah. 
But for you, what made you was because you know I know you worked on that big project in Philly where you hid the the, the donkeys, donkeys during yeah yeah. But what what made what was that bond? It seems mm -hmm. like you have a bond to artists. Yeah. Where did that come from, and when did you start doing that? Um, one answer I always give is that there actually is a lot of art talent in my own family, but for some reason genetics skipped me. So I appreciate arts, always have, always been around the arts. My mother's a very talented artist. My mother-in-law from my first wife, very talented, you know, living artist. Um, and so I, I think I appreciate artists and understand their business, but they also appreciate me. So I've been volunteering at least the beginning of my legal career as much as I can with the Philadelphia Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. So that's the struggling artists who, making, who are just starting their career or need some basic help. And then I've had fortunate, maybe through referrals from PVLA, where somebody comes to them and thinks they everything is free, but they're like, nah, you don't quite qualify, but Michael Adler would be a good lawyer for you. So I've gotten some incredible referrals from PVLA. And then I just always also believe that, you know, they say sometimes one of, the, one of my other phrases is the earth without art is just eh. Take out the A-R-T, it's just E-H. And so our life is just better with art. And artists are, to me, just entrepreneurs who have no business skills, right? I think I can say that respectfully. Most of the time, they respect what I do for them, and I am in awe of what you do and what artists do. So if we can just appreciate each other, I always charge artists less because I want to help. I want to make this world a better place by letting people laugh, by walking. Yeah, I don't know if you saw, I posted my new cover story on Facebook is me walking into the Freedom Sculpture in Philadelphia, which is an internationally known public sculpture by an artist named Zenis Ferdakis. And I've been blessed to be to have done a lot of legal work with Zenis Ferdakis, some very high profile matters and some very confidential private commissions. And so, and he then, gave me a miniature version of the Freedom Sculpture, which is one of my most prized possessions in my office, a private, personal little miniature sculpture of one of the top 10 most famous public sculptures in the world. Um, and so I just love what I do. I love the art world, love the battles, love the business, and love using my skills to support the art world. I'm just impressed you can say that name so easy. It's like it's like <laughs> the, I can't even, what is it? What the artist Zenas Ferdakis? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 it's one of those things that sounds like it has a lot of uh, consonants in a row. I know that's one of the series. <laughs> he's Greek. Yeah, it's a long name, but yeah. So uh, okay, we talk about you know you talk to these tell people you you shouldn't want to drive an Uber and stuff like that. You know you want to concentrate. As someone who's been around businesses, what's your take on people who fake it till they make it? Because I see that a lot in the business world. I'm okay world. with that. Uh, but is it? I'm okay with that. Are you okay with that? I'm okay with that because I think uh, there's a bit of I, I think every so. I'm a lawyer, I rely upon facts. So oftentimes I'm sniffing out the bullshit with either a new client who comes into my office or an adversary or a deponent that I'm asking questions under oath for cross-examination. But faking it till you make it, I'm okay with that as long as you're authentic because I think everybody has to have a little bit of confidence and a little bit of stretching the truth. It depends what world we're talking about. But in business, you know, I say this all the time, you can give me the facts, but I'm gonna verify it, trust but verify. You're entitled to your uh, opinions, but not your facts. But entrepreneurs, fake it till you make it, I think that's not uncommon. I know in my professional life for the last 25 years, I get to see behind the curtains of some of the folks who are kind of faking it till they make it. In real estate, someone who says they have 100 doors, meaning 100 units they're renting, when in reality, they have eight and they're managing 10 others and they're like not getting able to make paycheck to paycheck. But they're telling the world because they want more opportunities. Like that's okay. Like puffing is okay to me as long as you don't – as long as people no longer trust you. Now you uh, – I think it was yesterday. Yesterday you spoke to a bunch of influencers. And no, it's coming up next weekend. Yeah. So now what are you going to what are you going to talk to them about? Because, you know yeah. – Influencers, and I always joke around. I mean, if you're an, inf I mean, everyone thinks they're an influencer, right. you know. And and we're in that we're in that place because of, you know, LinkedIn and and you know, social media. That I always say, it, 
it doesn't make a difference what kind of microphone you have right. or if you do these smash cuts. If your content is crap, it's still crap. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, you can't make it look better. But how did they find you just because you're, because mm-hmm. it's just, you know, it's influencers. And these aren't, these aren't like someone right. on LinkedIn who has like a thousand followers. As you said, one guy has like millions of followers. Millions. So Seven these are actually millions. people who are making a shitload of money yes. doing this and they actually can influence. Yes. How did they find you, and what will you talk to them about? Yeah, sure. So the main guy behind this is the Blueprint Summit Conference, which will be held in Philadelphia on March 25th. All day, there's a VIP event the night before. I think it's sold out, but there'll be Zoom and live stream. So there's a guy who kind of is putting this together, and he has mentees in this other – he has a stream of businesses. Like, he teaches people multiple diverse investment streams, multiple sources of income. And one of his big things, I think, is a credit class. Like, if you want to make money, if you want people to invest in you, but your FICO score is 480, how can we improve your FICO score? And there's tips and tricks to that. He has a lot of mentees. He has a very large clout. And he's putting on this conference. The last few years, I think he's done a virtual conference. This is the first one in person. So just fortuitously, his event producer happened to have been a friend of mine, a client of mine. I've spoken at her national conferences because she's an event planner. She's been a personal client of mine. So she reached out like four months ago and said, hey, I'm starting to put this thing together. Do you want to come? And I think she wrote me in by saying, you can be in the audience. And when we say you need a good lawyer, there's a lawyer in the back. And then all of a sudden, like two weeks ago, she sends me the scripts. I'm like, yeah, we threw you in for 40 minutes. You down for that? I'm like, okay. Yeah, what do you want me to talk about? So I can wing it. You know, we're having a great conversation here. You know, I have no idea if 20 minutes have passed or three hours. I love having a conversation with Steve Cooper. I can get on stage and talk about legal topics. At that conference, still working on it, still trying to get a sense of what the audience would want to hear. I'm going to talk about, like, life as an entrepreneur. We talked about some of the things already. I will talk about some of my other tips with clients, like nine dinners is a mantra I have talked about for a long time. And nine dinners means before you become partners with somebody, you need to date them. You wouldn't sign a prenuptial agreement or get married with someone until you've had at least nine dates or dinners. You certainly wouldn't trade a, sign a bank account and become joint obligors or partners with someone that you haven't had nine meetings with. And this is not your best friend from college who you've had 100 beers with. This is nine dinners about the business venture that you're going to put your capital, your time, talent, and treasure in and try to make money together. And the first three should just be fun. Like, um, why are we doing this? What are we going to do? How are we going to make a million? How are we going to make a billion? The next three should be a little more serious. Like, okay, how much are we each putting in? And maybe even like, what if we don't like each other? What if I have to move to LA because the comedy career is calling me and I can't do this anymore? Like prenuptial agreement issues. Like how are we going to buy each other out? The next three should probably be with lawyers. Like we have good ideas, but let's get this down on paper. So if we end up hating each other, at least we thought about this. So yeah, well, nine dinners. Yeah, that type of stuff. Well, it's funny the nine dinners thing. If you if you compact it a little bit, it's also how I look into networking. You yeah. should meet people at events mm. and you should sit there and get to know them. And now I believe I think. Christy Berg, Christy mm-hmm. Berg introduced us, which I saw her yeah. yesterday at an event. I haven't seen her forever, and it's funny because she changed companies, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden I sent her an email for a coffee with Cooper, and it bounces back. I go, well, she's been coming. She comes like every week, and I go, what the? And then finally she's like, oh my god, she goes, she sent me an email last week. Oh my god, here's my new email. Mm-hmm. And uh, but so I think it's all like networking. You know, you want to yeah. meet with someone before you you want to do business with them. You have to get right. to know them. How important when you took off to go on your own was networking to you, and how important is it? for you now. Oh, it, it hasn't changed. And so the people in my life, whether it's my girlfriend, my my kids, my wife, my ex-wife, networking is my life. Network networking is your net worth. And I tell mentees all the time and I've been blessed to be called mentor by many people. It's one of my favorite other than dad, I love to be called mentor by people. Um, networking is my life and it's part of your business day. Some people only network when they're about to lose their job to find the next job. Some people only network because they're a transactional sales guy and needs to sell 100 life insurance policies to make a living. But really, networking is about giving, right? Giver's gain and all that B&I philosophy stuff that I, it's about helping other people. It comes back 10 times over. It's about strategic partnerships with people. It's about forming alliances with other trusted advisors. In my world, for example, for any realtors listening out there or wealth advisors or CPAs, I get all my business from those folks. I don't even have a website. I did have a website. I took it down. It was all spam. 
All of my business comes from relationships with the Steve Coopers of the world or other people who are my clients who refer me other clients or from other trusted advisors who have a client who says Michael Leather's the one you need to speak to. So networking is how I meet those people, get to know those people, trust those people, feed their plate with stuff so that they feel inclined to want to refer their clients to me. Now, this is a question. I was talking to someone the other day about this. And, you know, you're a good networker. I'm a good networker. And, you know, some people just aren't good networkers. Right. And, and, and I think it's like comedy. It's like athletes, being an athlete. It's inherent. You're yeah. born. You can either talk to. And you can get tips. Like when I when I started doing comedy, I knew I was I wasn't a class clown, but I knew I could do it. Mm -hmm. And my mom said, go to the learning acts in Philly. So I went to the learning acts in Philly and. They basically said, here's how you write an act. Here's where you go. We're mm -hmm. going to take you to an open mic. And out of like the 15 in the class, only two of us pursued it because we knew we could do it. We had that. What would you say to someone who sucks at networking, yeah. but they want to get better? I don't care. You can't, people can't sit there. I, it's like, I don't believe people say, this book will change your life. Right. No. I mean, the thing, mistakes I've made is where is because of me. But what would you say to someone who's not a good networker and they're just a dolt? Like, you know, uh, what, what, I, what would you tell them to do to yeah. enhance that? Or someone yeah. in the same vein who has social anxiety? Well, I think we all have social anxiety. I come off as an extrovert to some people. But first of all, I was probably very introverted in middle school. I was a wild animal on the soccer field. But everywhere else, I had glasses and I was awkward, just like a lot of us. Um, I have a lot of tips for this. And I love that question because everybody can be a great networker. But it's what networking is. What What is networking? Um, it's not billboards on 995 that Michael Adler's a lawyer. Like, I'm not a personal injury lawyer. I'm not going to put a billboard on there. So that's not marketing. Networking is relationships. If When you break it down to that, it's easy. Um, I had a he's, – he's passed now. He's a great mentor of mine. Uh, I knew him when I graduated law school and sat on a board. And he said his first day of the job, which was back in the 50s, he brought his brown paper bag lunch to his law firm on his first day of the job. And at noon, closed his door to open his brown paper sandwich and to start eating. And a partner knocked on the door and said, what are you doing? Why are you eating here? Why aren't you networking? He's like, it's my first day on the job. I thought I was going to have He's like, no. Every single day, you should try to make an hour to connect with your law school buddies with your college buddies and just your friends, because that's networking, that counts. And so when you start to realize that the people you went to college with, even the idiots, when the, or the people that we went to law school with, two to three to five years from now are gonna be clients, general counsels at companies, and potential referral sources, that networking starts now. You're building relationships. You're asking them how they're doing, what can you do to help them? And when they're in a position to give you business back, no matter what business you're in, you've already set the relationship. You've been authentic. And so starting with day one, even if you have a job, even if you're a CPA who's working from 6 a.m. to midnight at night, don't neglect your networking because it's like going to the gym. It's hard to start. And once you go every day, it's just part of your day. But once you stop, it's hard as hell to start again. Do I go to the South Jersey Chamber of Commerce? Who are the people? No, you got to do it. You got to make it part of your day and make it realize that it's really a part of your investing in yourself. So if you think of it that way, there's no dolts. Everybody can do it. And then I have other tips for breaking into conversations and and icebreakers and how to get away from bad people and how to avoid that salesman who's throwing cards in your face. And I, ta I love talking about that stuff. I love teaching that stuff. One of my pet peeves about networking is just when you go to an event, and I think it's the way I was brought up, is when you're, talk when you're talking to someone and someone walks up, and let's say I'm talking to you, mm -hmm. and let's say Jim Turpin walks up, right. and, you, and you don't know Jim. And he goes, hey, Michael. And when that, when that person doesn't say, oh, Jim, do you know Steve? That pisses me yeah, off. And I it's agree. always, I, I've had friends, you know, when I was in LA, I'd always introduce friends and we'd be out at a bar and I'd, I'd be an over, you know, over introducer because mm -hmm. then you get a few buzz, you get yeah. buzz, you forget, and you go, <laughs> Coop, you introduced us like to this guy 15 times. But that's the one thing I do hate. But I, I think in all, you know, that's one thing, and I hate the card pushers. Yeah. And, uh, and I hate the people that are just full of shit. Right. And, and as being, you know, Someone with a background in comedy who comes from we we're instinctful. We know I can pick a person who's full of shit out yep. at an event right away, and I keep away yep. from them. What is something you don't like about networking? Because you do it yep. great, but there's got to be some stuff you like me not introducing assholes and just people who I just I hate phony people because I always say you're not going to impress me. I interview. 
big stars. Okay, right. I've done zooms with Stephen Van Zant. You're an insurance guy, okay? I don't care what the money you're saying. Yeah. You don't have what he does. And like Stephen Van Zandt was like nicest guy ever. Yeah. Ed Asner, legend. Grumpy old man, but nice. In fact, right. he looked at me when we took a picture and a joke and said, wipe that smug fucking smile <laughs> off your face. And he's like, can I come back on the show? But what do you, what is it that you don't like about networking? Because I think yeah. we, we like it, but there's gotta be some things you don't like. Let me think about that. So there is, uh, obviously it's the, um, transactional networkers. It's the ones who are going to the event because they want to hand out 10 cards or get 10 cards, and that's their goal. And then they're going to follow up you the next day and try to sell you what they're selling. I also think it's rude the other way. When somebody is trying to sell renewal Anderson windows, and they ask you, do you need windows? And I go, no, I just bought windows a week ago. And they go, oh, thanks. And they move away. I'm like, you're not just here to a networking event to sell me windows. You're here to know what I'm passionate about and what you're passionate about. And maybe we're both passionate about Bruce Springsteen, so we'll build a relationship based on that. And you know what? My next-door neighbor needs windows, but you didn't ask me about my next-door neighbor. But once I get to know you, like you, trust you, and share a passion with you, I'm going to share your interest with my neighbor and say, I don't need windows, but they do. So I think it's that very short-term transactional networking that's obviously offensive probably a failure and they're the adults now we've been doing this talking for a while here and i haven't asked you right now what are all the areas of law <laughs> you practice because i know you work and yeah. i know and i know real estate but like if someone said like if someone here just goes hey I, I like that michael adler guy you know i want i want to i want to throw him some business right what are your what areas do you cover what is your Umbrella. Sure. It's fairly broad. Um, so I usually say that I'm a business and real estate lawyer. So on the business side, that means forming a business, someone who needs an LLC right at the beginning. Then they need some other contracts, an independent contractor agreement, non-disclosure agreement, non-compete agreement, a contract with their customers and vendors and things like that. That's simple. That's startup stuff. I usually don't do it on an hourly basis. I sit down with them, come up with a startup budget because I want to be their general counsel. I want to build a relationship with them and not look at it as a big initial bill. Um, then sometimes they bring on partners. So now I'm drafting a partnership agreement, an operating agreement. Sometimes they later don't like their partners. So I do the wrap-up or business divorces or separation agreements or buyout agreements. Sometimes I help them with a merger. I love doing that where they're buying another company and we're doing due diligence and figuring out what the other company's worth, writing a deal, and then trying to keep them to the terms of the deal. Um, I do litigation. I still do a lot of civil litigation, so things like partnership fights, contract disputes, love writing letters. And um, then the real estate side, right? So that's everything from buying and selling real estate, negotiating leases. Restaurants are my favorite client. I love because I love to eat. So I was talking to a restaurant client on the way here. We just put an LOI in on a brand new location that looks like the tenant wants to give the keys back to the landlord before anyone knows we're going to do a deal with the landlord. That's a great opportunity for me, for my clients. Landlord-tenant issues, uh, even fights over real estate, post-closing disputes in residential where someone painted over the mold, painted over the cracks. There's roof issues, things like that that weren't disclosed. And then I do a lot of work with artists, as, you've, as we've talked about. I do a lot of work with nonprofit boards. I run a statewide cyber charter school in Pennsylvania. I work with a ton of museum and art nonprofits and other type of nonprofits. I don't do immigration work. I refer that. I don't do criminal work, usually, unless Steve Cooper needed a lawyer uh, and wanted a very confidential matter. Stay away from divorce work, even though because I do partnership fights and business divorce, I sometimes get brought in on a husband and wife that own a business type thing, but I'm not going to do custody or alimony or that, you know, that's for somebody else who has empathy. I don't have empathy. But <laughs> is, is there one case that stands out in your mind that you look at and go, this is why I became a lawyer? Oh, I say that all the time. Is there one? There's like, a lot, but this one. This is one of those that also made me think, this is why I also want to do more than just be a litigator. So I had a friend, um, best friend from high school into college, we went to college together, and he's a computer consultant. This is around Y2K, 
when everyone who had that computer degree was making ridiculous money. Remember, planes were going to fall out of the sky because our computers didn't have four digits. So all these smart IT guys, who were the nerdiest guys in high school, were making ridiculous money. And they all kind of knew this was a hoax, but they were making a lot of money. So my friend, uh, his real name is Greg. He was one of these very high-paid guys in 1999 and 2000 that was making a lot of money working for global 500 companies through a staffing agency. Okay, And so the staffing agency hired not just Greg, but let's just say dozens of other people to work for her clients. So these people were making a lot of money. But she gets the money from the company and was not paying these guys. So she started to keep the money and was slow pay and always had excuses. We're figuring out what's going on here. I, Greg and I work with this woman. I get her on the phone. We actually have dinner together. She agrees to pay Greg. And he's fine until it happens again. And then he starts finding out about the other people. So we're doing all this, like, what's going on here? This became a fascinating story, and it gets into salacious stuff. Long story short, I ended up suing her and her lesbian partner, and there's a reason why that's important, over like 12 people's major checks from 20000 to 80000 each, none of whom could have afforded a lawyer if they were just suing themselves. But 12 together, it became one after another in front of a jury. And it turned out she was keeping their money because she was trying to adopt a kid in China. And she was using all of their money for adoption expenses and traveling to China. And she was factoring. And we got, this was just watching the jury's face for two weeks in this repetitive testimony made me think like, A, I'm helping a friend. B, I'm helping business clients. I'm taking a business story to a jury and putting life into it because some of this stuff can be really dry. But I love this stuff. And that was a really cool verdict. We got punitive damages, and it was a big story in the New York press and a big story in the Philadelphia press. And it was one of the highlights of my career. I've had a lot of other amazing opportunities. And sometimes it's not the big zeros for a big jury verdict. It's literally helping uh, an artist who was her work was being stolen and replicated. I mean, every day I have wins, and every day I have a good job file where I have nice little notes from clients that appreciate. And I love what I do every day. What's the craziest case that you can talk about? Like, because you'd always Ooh. hear like, like just uh, one you sit there and, you know, you see your, your story sometimes, and it usually takes place in Florida, of the weirdest stuff. Like, you mm. sit there and go, but is there any case that you go, holy crap, if I told people yeah. this at a cocktail party, they would say, Michael, you're full of shit. So, great great question. Off the top of my head, the one that comes to mind is um, I also do a lot of volunteer work. We call pro bono work. And there's one organization in Philly, shout out to the Support Center for Child Advocates, that pairs um, social workers and attorneys to kids that are abused and neglected in the juvenile justice system or in the – so there was a – there were five kids whose father was doing very bad thing. He had 17 kids that we know about. And the one mother was unable to care for her five. She was mentally challenged. So these five kids were observing a harem in Philly, in North Philly, observing they, they were sexually abused by the father. Uh, the mother was unable to care. So the court system, DHS, did the right thing and kind of grabbed the five kids and put them in the foster care system. And then a woman was appointed as the court advocate. And this guy who doesn't believe that women should be treated like men threatened the life of the judge, threatened the life of the other advocate. So I was called by the support center to say, hey, the director wants to co-counsel this. Two men come in and let's take on this guy. All right. So we take on. He eventually goes to jail. I keep learning more and more stuff about this guy. He was living actually a mile from my house in a motel when he got picked up because he was wanted. In jail, he allegedly stabbed a guy with a plastic fork and killed someone else in jail. But that's not the crazy part. So the crazy part is he did something else that was in my paying job, is I kept hearing from clients that they were like going to barbershop. My African-American clients were buying properties in like West Philly, $8,000 from a guy who kept saying things like, my aunt just died. I don't want this property. Do you want it? What do you have in your pocket? It was like $5,000 of cash. One of my favorite clients was like an Applebee's waiter. He saved up $5,000 to buy a property from the guy he met in the barbershop. Well, all the guy was doing was faking deeds. He was just forging deeds and then selling it to innocent victims who thought they were getting a property. And then in this case, this guy then thought, wow, for $5,000, I got a great house that was abandoned. Some guy had an amp. 
I'm going to put thirty to 50000 of my own money on credit cards and then try to sell it, like flip. And this is what they do because they didn't do a title report. And now he's 50000 in debt, and now he's stuck with a property that's not actually his. So then bringing quiet title actions and just proving all that. And this guy today is one of my best friends, best referral sources, and is doing amazing things. But it started with him getting duped by the same guy I was dealing with who was, like, threatening judges' lives because he had 17 kids. So I, I see a lot of things. That just is one of those that mixes my pro bono with my real estate and uh, pretty wild. One final question. Yeah, uh, sure. Where where do you see Michael Adler? I'm not going to say the next five years because I, I do a bit about this <laughs> where I, I was getting interviewed by a guy with a hairpiece. And he says, where do you see yourself in the next five years? And I said, hopefully not wearing a fucking bad hairpiece. But what what is where do you see your where where do you want to take your career to? Not in the next five years, but your your long term goals because yeah. you've only been on your I mean you've been on your own ten ten years and you're kicking ass. But you know that's still that's still new yeah. for being on your own. Where do you where do you want to go? What directions do you personally want to go to, which would fulfill you and make you happy? Yeah, great question. I think about it a lot. I like to set big goals for myself. Um, so when I was growing up, the answer was U.S. Supreme Court justice. So if a candidate for president is listening, I would take that job. Um, Chamber of Commerce CEO of the Greater Philadelphia Chamber of Commerce would also be another. I love to put it out there because being the cheerleader for the business community is something that I would give up my law practice for. U.S. ambassador to some country. I mean, I set big goals. Uh, otherwise, I would be happy to be a lawyer in my own firm till I die. Um, I love doing what I do. I also invest with clients and dabble in other things. So I consider myself pretty blessed and pretty varied, and no day is the same as any other day. Well, that's awesome. I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, how do people get in touch with you? How, I know you don't have a, yeah. you don't have a website, yeah. and there's like another. There's a few other Michael Adler. So you got to put <laughs> in tw if you Google him, you have to put Philadelphia because there's like New Brunswick Michael Adler. There's a bunch of different ones. But how do people get in touch with you? Yeah, the best way is to find me on LinkedIn, and I'm the law office of Michael Adler, and I have over ten thousand contacts on LinkedIn. So I'm not the ones in New Brunswick and South Jersey. There are also good Michael Adlers. Feel free to connect on LinkedIn. Send me a message. I'm at M A D L E R nine thousand. That's been my my AIM you know, Instagram and Twitter and everything. So if you just Googled Madler 9000, you'd find it. And there's a reason why there's a 9000 there. But uh, What's that reason? I was playing Doom at the time. And so <laughs> the best gun was the BFG 9000. I was a, probably a high school kid, maybe not even. And AOL wouldn't let me have M. Adler. And AOL wanted to give me M. Adler 28729. I'm like, no one's going to remember that. So I wanted M. Adler 9000, which I thought could remember. And I was playing a game with a gun. That's the real story, and no one really knows that. So, people, go, go follow him on Twitter because he's very funny on Twitter. He tweets some funny stuff. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. But uh, the Coop Tank, go listen to past episodes at thecooptank.podbean.com. Also on Spotify, Amazon Music, and iHeartRadio. Go listen to my other podcast, Cooper Talk. There's over 950 episodes with big celebrities. You can email me at thecooptank at yahoo.com. I want to thank my producer, Joe Gangemi, the best in the town. He's done amazing things at Sweet Recording. you got to check Sweet Recording out. Email them at hello at sweet, S-U-I-T-E, recording.com. I'm Steve Cooper. This is the Coop Tank, and I'll talk to you next time.